1: Institute of Art and Ideas, Articles, Videos, and Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. So,
0: most of the evil in the world is done with the best of intentions, or so said T.S. Eliot.
1: This week, our speakers debate the necessity. Of morality.
0: And 9 11, the guillotine, and the Inquisition were inspired by those who thought they had the highest moral principles. Many philosophers have concluded that morality is a subjective human invention.
1: Should we then simply encourage and argue for acts that we support and do without morality altogether? Or is the authority of morality the tenuous thread that holds society together? To discuss this thorny issue, we have a wonderful panel. We are joined by Head of the Department of Philosophy, Logic and Scientific Method at the London School of Economics, Jason Mackenzie alexander Philosopher and Historian of Science at the University of Paris, Diderot. And author of the recent book, Irrationality, A History of the Dark Side of Reason, Justin Smith. And Professor of Philosophy and Director at the Institute of Philosophy, Barry C. Smith. Once you've finished listening to the episode, please do let us know what you think and head over to iTunes and give us a rating or review. And do check out our latest playlist created just for you on our website at www.iai.tv. Back now to Miriam Francois, who hosts this week's episode. Can we kick off with
0: you, Jason? Is morality necessary?
2: So if we think about whether morality is necessary, it's first important to get clear on exactly what sense of necessary we mean. To begin, it's, I think, hopefully, obvious that morality isn't logically necessary. If someone is acting immorally, they are not acting inconsistently. It's not a logical impossibility for people to violate the principles and rules of morality. It's also, I think, important to realize that when we talk about whether morality is necessary, we don't mean physical necessity. If we think about the rules and principles of morality, it's not as if they are somehow written into the fabric of the universe so that it's physically necessary that people, when they behave morally, are following those physical requirements in the same way that when people follow, the, say, the law of gravity, that they are following those physical necessities. Rather, when we think about whether morality is necessary we i believe we should approach this from thinking about it from the point of view of whether morality is practically or pragmatically or prudentially necessary that is whether morality is necessary in order to have a well functioning society that is harmonious well ordered well regulated and enabling people to achieve what it is that they want to achieve given the constraints placed by everyone else. So if that's the way we understand the question of whether morality is necessary, then I would say yes, morality is necessary. In the absence of morality, we would effectively find ourselves living in a state of nature where every person's particular interests, wants, desires, and preferences run the risk of clashing and conflicting with everyone else's. What the rules and principles of morality give us is a way of trying to mitigate those conflicts that exist when people try to achieve what it is that they want or desire or see realized. So morality then is necessary in order to try to achieve social cooperation, to try to help encourage altruism And to try to help people behave in ways that effectively convert a problem of conflict and a problem and a conflict that could turn into a war of all against all, of people trying to realize what they want at the expense of other people, to instead a social environment where we can all work together to try to achieve what we want with the benefit and not at the expense of other people.
0: What do you you think? Is morality necessary?
3: I agree with Jason's opening gambit that there is uh, certainly no logical or physical necessity. I'm not quite sure uh, we can say that it is not a question of incoherence, of a kind of logical incoherence when people fail to act rationally, but maybe we can come back to that later. I think that morality is best seen as... A particular inflection of, or let's say, a given society's conception of what uh, morality is, is a particular local inflection of some sort of natural evolved capacity. Uh, and we can see this inflection much as it's often been said of natural languages, uh, that natural languages are the natural uh, kind of uh, expression of an innate capacity. Similarly, a moral system is the local expression, like English is a local or regional language, of something that is there for all people in all times. So what is that thing that is there for all people in all times? It is extremely variable in its expressions There are cultures in which it is morally compulsory to eat the mortal remains of your grandmother, and there are cultures in which that is abhorrent and terrible. There are cultures that, uh, and this is something that Montaigne, already in the 16th century, fully well understood, that consider cannibalism an important part of, let's say, the reproduction of society and the continuation of society from one generation up to another. And so I'm not defending uh, what is so often too facilely called relativism, but I do think it is absolutely important to understand with Montaigne that morality etymologically, but also conceptually, is linked to the notion of mores, which is a pretty close synonym of customs, right? So uh, then there is something we have to respect in order to be members of the same society, but... In the end, it's probably not so different from having to respect the rules according to which you drive on one side of the road in the UK and on another side of the road on the continent. Perhaps uh, we can, behind these variations upon custom that we think of as morality, find something universal. But that's going to be, so to speak, very, very minimum. I would say probably don't have sex with your nuclear family members and don't arbitrarily kill other people. But beyond that, I'm with Montaigne.
0: Great, thank you for that. Barry.
4: So, so that sense of whether morality is necessary and we're wondering how to define that, is the way in which we can hear it as meaning it's kind of um, inescapable. There's something a little bit inescapable about morality because when we see people who we think are not behaving morally, we talk about them being immoral. Now you can only be immoral if there's a standard of morality against which you're going. If you imagine the idea of non-morality, it's an idea in which there's just no set of values and no distinctions between doing anything that counts as right or wrong. So that's not, that's not in the ballpark of, of human, the human condition, human society. We can't even imagine what it is to live in a world in which we don't feel some of the strain and some of the force of these uh, moral binds or uh, moral principles that, that we think we should stand by. Now, the trouble with the idea of taking a stronger line on morality and looking for something universal is that one way to guarantee universality is to think of moral truths or moral values as objective. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, objective means. They're not, they're not dependent on me. In some sense, they're independent of me and therefore independent of all of us. They sort of stand there in some objective space that, that doesn't seem to then have a story about how we engage with them. Because if they are so objective and so abstract, so cut free from the, the things that move and bind us and motivate us, how do we adhere to them? Now, of course, there used to be such a system In various religious systems, you could state what the principles were and then think you had to adhere to them. Nowadays, because we can compare religious regimes, we can compare them on moral grounds, and we can say we think some of them are not morally acceptable. So we're thinking of a higher standard. But the point I want to try and stress is that if morality is to feel inescapable, it's because there's some way in which it tugs at us, some way in which it has this feeling of, it's not just up to me to do whatever I'm inclined to do, I feel the force of what it's right to do and when I'm doing something that it's wrong to do. Now I'm worried, and I lay this on the table because it might help with the discussion, I'm worried by Jason's line of thinking, it's about making sure that we can uh, socially cohere It's making sure that we can can meet our basic needs and that we can reach an agreement where everything will sort of settle down and we can regulate our social behavior. Because I think there are moral judgments and moral decisions where there's nothing social. In fact, the social requirements would go against you. Here's a little story to finish with. So in the story of Billy Budd, Captain Veer is the captain of a ship in the Royal Navy at a time when there was a lot of risk of mutiny. A man has been killed on board the ship, and the the Navy require that there is someone who is prosecuted, someone who is made responsible for that, so we can keep order. And Captain Veer has got to decide whether to hang Bud. Now, he, he knows that Bud is innocent, but imagine he's living in a world where the Navy require him to do it. And imagine living in a world in which if he doesn't go ahead and hang Bud, if he doesn't make an example of him, the Navy will strip him of his commission. Imagine his family who will be thrown out of their grace and favor house. Imagine his family saying, you know, you've left us destitute. Imagine Veer knowing that nobody would sympathize and nobody would understand why he didn't hang Bud. They would require him to do it. They'd have no sympathy if he didn't. Nonetheless, I think all of us can feel veers dilemma and we can feel it's just not right. And even if the world turns horribly wrong and no one sympathizes, it's just wrong to hang bud. And that's the pool and the grip of morality I think we should be exploring.
0: Thank you very much. So Jason, on, on that topic, should we, should we hang bud? Um, is morality just a, a subjective human invention, in which case uh, you could argue that to, in order to maintain order in that context, it, it might make a lot of sense to hang in.
2: Okay, so that's a very good question. Let me begin with trying to disambiguate a couple of issues that are at concern here. One is this question about whether morality is objective, and another is a question about whether morality is relative, and people see those as intention. And actually what I want to argue is that morality is both. To to see how that's possible, it's important to realize that the antonym of relative is not objective, it's actually absolute or universal. The antonym of objective is subjective. And so the question of whether morality is, is objective is a question of whether what grounds the truth of moral statements, and I'm going to assume for the sake of argument that moral statements are true. There's an entire philosophical school that denies that, but I'll accept that. What grounds the truth of moral statements for the objectivist is not simply the judgment of a single individual. But that allows for the possibility of the grounding of moral truths to be the community, to be the larger society. Now, whether or not morality is relative is a question about whether morality is local or context-specific. And this gets to the point that Justin was raising about mores and the fact that there's great cultural variation you can have cultural variation in morality where the grounds of the truth of moral statements are the community, and in that case, morality is both objective and relative. To return, in closing, to the question Barry raised about whether we should hang Billy Budd, this, I think, points to a different issue, and I think it's an issue about where people are rightly concerned about whether moral principles are universal or without exception, and you were channeling Rebecca, I'm going to try, hopefully not incorrectly, to channel uh, Stanley Fish in the sense that my understanding of what Stanley would have argued is that there are no universal moral principles that hold without exceptions. I think that's a very important fact. I think that's correct, first of all. But to say that there are no universal moral principles that hold without exceptions is not to say that there are no moral statements which hold with a great degree of generality. And so the point about Billy Budd is that I would say the tension we feel is that on one hand we can say yes, it is important to hold people accountable generally in many cases whenever something happens, but yet we realize that this urge to hold certain individuals accountable can go awry awry in certain cases. I think that there's this tension between the generality of moral principles, but yet realizing that any sufficiently complex moral situation can be constructed where we see that that moral principle can be undermined. Shall we hang Bud? I think the question <laughs> is underspecified. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think I, that is I, I a philosopher's
0: not, answer I think, if I, I ever not. heard one. I,
2: I think not, but, but
4: look, I'm wondering whether you really have got a position. I mean, remember. The challenge to you of the Billy Budd case is not that we think it's universally wrong to kill an innocent person. The challenge was within his society, if the society rules are what determine what's right and wrong, can an individual nevertheless feel in their own subjective impelling of their conscience way, I won't do this. And I, and I think that, that was the point I was trying to st- strive for, not, not a, a search for, for objectivity. The other thing I'd say quickly is, you're saying that the position you're setting out is a way of being compatibly relativist and objectivist. And I would just point out it's not relativist at all because there's something it's absolutely right to do in each of the societies that you pick out. They will do different things. In some cases, it might be right to allow stunning and killing of, of those who are found guilty of particular crimes. In other societies, it won't. But it's absolutely the case that relative to each of those societies, that's what it's right to do in that society. That is not
3: relativism, that is absolutism.
0: Ooh, that, yeah, no, please, go ahead. I want
3: to jump in with a a historical point, and I'm glad you brought up Melville, and there's also, in Benito Sereno, there's an example of comparable case of lifeboat cannibalism, and it's not that I'm obsessed with cannibalism, but I think both of these cases are important because there's a very crucial link historically between the development of maritime law and the emergence of an international law, right? And this goes back to figures like Grotius in the 16th century. presumably our conception of a law that binds everybody as we go around the world, whatever the peculiar community idiosyncrasies are, is a reflection of this. But also in the maritime context, there's a need for, a so to speak, a draconian law where you have to do extreme things in order to maintain any kind of order. So is it right to hang Um, bud? I don't think so. I personally (laughs) don't think it's right to hang bud. I do think the people in the lifeboat were right to eat their mates and right even to draw straws to decide which mate gets executed first. So these are my own intuitions, and I don't know how much they're really worth, but if I were the captain, I would invoke some kind of higher order law that would make me ultimately ineligible for being a captain of a ship, right? And I would just have to acknowledge that. I wouldn't make a good captain because I couldn't hang one of my sailors.
2: So so, sorry, can I just jump in with- Go ahead. So one point I would like to just say as a way of slightly challenging with what, what, what Barry said primarily about whether it's right to hang bud, I think there's a danger of conceiving of morality as a set of principles that once established are static that we then constantly refer back to. I think it's important to understand morality as, the, as a process of social construction So Philip Kitcher has a very nice book called The Ethical Project. And I think that's an important title, because what it suggests is that ethics is an ongoing project. It is never complete. The construction of our principles of morality, our process of refining them, and our process of trying to figure out what it is that we really believe we should do, all things considered, is something at which we never are at the end stage of inquiry. We're constantly testing our intuitions and our beliefs against cases and so on. And I think it's a mistake for us to ever get to a point where we think we've actually identified all of the moral principles and everything that actually matters for the moral decisions. So perhaps one way of thinking about the Budd case is that we can understand, perhaps, why a society would end up into a point where they had these principles of accountability. But yet when we see how they're applied in the Billy Budd case, we are then moved to question the degree to which those principles should apply without exception and realise that there are important defe- points of defeasibility that were not yet recognised by society at large. But that requires us to think of morality as dynamic and ongoing and mutable and changeable.
3: Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level.
0: And on that point, I would like to problematise, if I may, two uh, words that I've been hearing in this conversation and I've been wondering what you've all been meaning by them. One is we, when we talk about morality. We. Who's we? Who do you mean? Because I don't know if I'm included in your we. And there's also a sense of consensus when you guys are talking about morality as if somehow there is a, a morality that we can come to that, uh, you know, community is underwritten by a community that reaches a certain view on morality that's shared. And to, to make the Bud case a bit more concrete, I'd like to relate it to pre-civil rights America in which there were many cases where, and I'll think of one specifically, but there were several of these cases in which a white woman claimed to have been sexually harassed or assaulted by an African-American man, and uh, in some cases, an African-American child, and then the white community would go out and uh, brutally beat this uh, child, in the case I'm thinking of, murder that child to protect the consensus around what was perceived as morality, which was the superiority of white people in America. So I'm bringing this in because I feel like the Bud case is great. It's theoretical, but I want to talk about the way in which morality has very real implications for life and death for people. And so it brings me back to the we. When we say we, we're not talking about the young African-American child who gets beaten to death in that case because the morality, he doesn't get a say in that morality. There has to be, do we we think that uh, what, what I'm trying to get at is if we do agree that it was worth a hanging bud to protect the consensus on the ship, are we agreeing that it was right to protect the morality of the consensus? I I don't
4: think it was right. And and the we here is an invitation that may or may not extend. You said it's theoretical, I don't think so. I think it's something that we all have to feel ourselves. I mean, This is what um, philosopher David Wiggins calls a sensible subjectivism about morality. We actually have to feel in ourselves what I can do or will do or won't do, otherwise morality's not getting a grip. If you're just going through the motions or re- regulating yourself by a set of principles, which you don't necessarily want to do, but you're agreeing to do, that's not it. You've got to feel the tug and the pull of something that's morally constraining you. And that's So when I said we, perhaps it reaches this room. Perhaps there are a group of people who say, no, don't see what you mean. Just hang, bud, don't, don't get it. And that's part of the problem Uh, You know, this is what Hannah Arendt said. We all know about the banality of evil. But the thing she said that was much more interesting was, at the end of the day, all that will save us is that there's some people who just won't do those things, right? And and we know that very many uh, Nazi officers who were asked to uh, carry out firing squads or asked to sort of look after things going on in camps, they refused to do it. Now, the usual defense was, well, if I didn't do it, you know, I would be taken out and shot. Actually, many of them weren't. They were sent off to sort of remote parts. They were demoted. But they just couldn't do it. And I think that is not going to be a universal we because we know lots of them did. But, but I think there's a core in there of those who respond to that, just as there would be a core in the white community who say, this is just wrong. I will not put up with this. That's, that's, that's some, it's like a little flame we try to keep alive And I I think it's not easily accounted for just in terms of social coordination and configuration, like the Navy case.
3: Well, it's a question of how far one is able, or uh, a community is able, to extend their moral attunement, right? Mm -hmm. And since the beginning of the modern period and to some extent also with uh, roots in antiquity and certain movements like early Christianity there's at least an aspiration to universalism at least uh, as far as the boundaries of the human species goes right this is not to say that this is always respected or people always uh, adhere to this fully and there are always Communities that lie outside of the bounds of, let's say, easy or convenient moral consideration, what the Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben refers to the, as the idea of the homo sacca, right? The person who's just kind of outside of uh, the bounds of moral consideration. Well, so there, well. there are constant failures to live up to this ideal, but. But, One
0: tries. But, but isn't the point that there were many people left out of the ability to constrain the definition of what was moral, including basically anyone that wasn't white male? And that's the, that is, when, when, so this is when I, when I come back to the we, yeah. is who do we mean is getting to define this morality? And I, and I raise this again because I feel that when we're talking about uh, societies in which we have individuals coming from different moral perspectives, mm-hmm. different religious perspectives, a-religious perspectives, that the emergence of some level of consensus around what is moral implies a we, which to me sounds like the we of power, the we of those who have the power to define what's moral and impose it on others. And so is in that sense, the morality that binds us together just the morality of those who have the power to impose it on
2: others? I think that's a really interesting question. And I think we need to distinguish between perhaps a historical conception of how moral education occurred and how people now think about morality in a time where we are much more willing to challenge authority. So traditionally, I would have thought that much more most moral education is very hierarchical and expressive of power. You had the uh, Catholic Church being the moral arbiter of what was right or wrong, what was good or evil, and that was the source of moral education. But what we've seen since you know, the Reformation, you know, the Enlightenment, and just kind of general willingness to question authority, we realize that not everything that has been taught as uh, moral principles or what is right or wrong or good or evil from sources of authority is in any way a, a guarantee of it being correct. And what we also see is a sense in which many... Uh, kind of revolutions in moral thought, have actually been generated from the bottom up through popular movements and willingness to challenge authority and so on. And I think that's very important because it means that what a society takes to be moral is an ongoing conversation in which, yes, there are expressions of power and vested authority and vested interests, but there are also the ability for people to self-organize and challenge that authority. And I think that that becomes very difficult as we try to, or not, perhaps not difficult, becomes challenging when we try to expand the circle of what morality encompasses. So the one point I would just kind of say in response to the original question about what happened in America with the civil rights movement and the violence against uh, African Americans, as I would not say that that is, I, w- I would want to resist saying, seeing that as uh, falling within the remit of how people understood Morality, because I think that there are many factors at work in society. There are social group effects, there is in group, out group effects, there is othering, there is violence that can occur between intergroup dynamics. And I think that that is also something that is at work here, because strictly speaking, much of the violence that occurred in the civil rights movement. WAS ostensibly FROM PEOPLE WHO WERE PART OF A RELIGIOUS CHRISTIAN-CATHOLIC UPBRINGING IN WHICH MURDER WAS WRONG, IN WHICH YOU SHOULD TREAT yeah. EVERYONE in, AS no, A SUBSPECIES. So, so so but, but, right, but, but, BUT THIS IS WHY this is I SAY moral. THAT THERE ARE SOCIAL DYNAMICS THAT ARE AT yeah. PRESENT IN ADDITION TO... Not, it's,
4: not a, IT'S NOT MORALITY THAT'S mm. at ISSUE HERE. I'm, I'M JUST GOING TO HAVE yeah. A CONTROVERSIAL yeah. THOUGHT. This, what, THE THING YOU'RE RAISING IS NOT ABOUT MORALITY, ALTHOUGH IT SEEMS TO BE. IT'S ABOUT FALSE BELIEFS. Yeah. Right. So, so what's really going on here is that a lot of people in the white community thought they were adhering to a moral code, yeah. but their moral code was defined in such a way that black people did not have equal worth and status and value. Now, when you see somebody like Anders Breivik going out and shooting people on an island, he thinks he's acting morally. He thinks, in his in his rather twisted thinking, he thinks these are enemies of the state. These are people who are determined to bring down the the, the values of Norwegian society. They're enemies.
0: Of the white race.
4: Of the white race. But that's a mistake. They were innocent victims and children. So it's a false belief. It's not the morality itself. The trouble is he was engaging, and a lot of these people are engaging, moral principles, running them off. Very, very faulty thinking. And we have to do work to get rid of that sort of belief. So I don't think it's it's an essentially moral problem there.
3: But this is why I'm maybe a bit worried about uh, the way Miriam framed her challenging question to us, because it's not as if Emmett Till's family uh, had uh, any radically different moral commitments uh, than the overt commitments of the people in power, right? Emmett Till's family, like uh, the white community, uh, presumably both believed that you shouldn't wantonly kill innocent people, right? The problem is that they attributed different warrant to the claims of members of the black community as opposed to members of the white community, including women, right? So here we have a kind of deadlock of intersectionality, I think, where you have two competing accounts of what happened, but in any case, uh, the problem is more uh, false beliefs and also a failure to carry through in, commit in action to one's own true commitments rather than yeah. uh, different moral commitments. Yeah.
0: So on that point, should we encourage and argue for acts we support and do, and do without morality altogether? And I think that is an interesting uh, point for us to think about in the context of now competing moral claims about some really thorny issues to go back to the US, but there are some questions around this uh, in the UK too, and specifically I'm thinking about female autonomy and abortion rights, um, and the idea that actually there are powerful groups in America today, some of whom are in government, who consider that it's morally objectionable for women to make decisions um, about their reproductive rights. Should we be doing away with any form of uh, morality at all? Should we just... How, how do we... Uh, how do we resolve that when it comes to competing authorities in power? Um
3: troubled by some work by philosophers, uh, again, I don't mean to name names, but uh, Liz Harmon, for example, the Princeton <laughs> philosopher, uh, uh, has, uh, has uh, uh, an article in which her, uh, the conclusion towards which she's arguing is that fetuses no more deserve moral consideration than plants. And my kind of maybe too anthropologically inclined uh, comparatist perspective is, well, when I read something like that, is to say, well, wait a minute, do plants deserve moral consideration? Sure. Uh, I hadn't thought about it before, but now I'm thinking about it, right? So it doesn't dissuade me from thinking about fetuses as candidates for moral status, right? And again, I think that uh, the candidacy for moral status is widely variable and it has much more to do with attunement at any given place or time in any given contextual cultural context and there could be a number of blind spots that we have and history shows that in the past we had certain blind spots now we probably have other ones. A gross kind of example of a blind spot is uh, the mass slaughter of billions of, of sentient beings every year that uh, I think you know is something that historically we weren't prepared to become morally attuned to. Does that mean that we're doing something wrong? Not necessarily, but it, sh- it does show that historically the bounds of our moral attunement are flexible.
0: So. Then I'll put that to you, Barry. Is, is the mass uh, slaughter of sentient beings in painful, excruciating conditions on an industrial scale morally wrong? <laughs> I'm just describing the meat industry. I, I, and I, 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 for all my no. sins, sometimes no. do eat meat. So I'm not no. like a... No, no. For this. No, yeah. I don't think it's I, not morally
4: no, Well, I mean, in excruciating circumstances, yes.
0: In, well, so certainly, course, yeah. Well, in okay, some so, cases, so, so yeah. you see,
4: therefore, why we have to pick and choose. Have to be careful here. Mm-hmm. Um, should you treat animals badly and and butcher can them, we? kill them? No. Well, well, obviously we can, in the sense of it happens. Ought we to? Yeah. No. Yeah. No. But you know, so so I would I would say you know animals have to have good welfare. They have to be well kept. But I also get a little bit queasy. I wonder if you do too. When, you know, in the supermarket, you read this lovely label, you know, our chickens were, were fed outside, they're allowed to run free, they were living lovely lives until we killed them and, and butchered them for you. And, you know, <laughs> I sort of feel, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a hypocritical meat eater. I don't want to be reminded of, you know, the animal running around. I don't want to, you know, sort of see a bit of meat that I know exactly where it came from. So, so there's a bit of hypocrisy there. But, but do I want good welfare standards in the, in the meat industry? Yes, of course I do. Uh, who would say no? So I think the, the, you know, the real question keeps coming back to not our morality, which is quite similar. It's about what you know, the factual conditions are, what the beliefs about them are, and what our motives are. I would move it on to this. What I've been driving at in all the things I've been saying is there's a tension between the, the, the moral principles or the idea of these fixed standards and what actually moves you as a moral being to to take action and and one of the things that might move us is empathy, of course, and you might think, well, we wouldn't treat animals so badly if we can empathize with animals and if we can think of their suffering and their pain. We wouldn't treat others so badly in other cultures if we could feel more common cause and community with them, however, however, Paul Bloom's got a very good point to make, psychologist, when he says we've got to be careful of empathy because empathy makes us pay a lot of attention to those who we like and who are close to us, you know, so people who are in our immediate circle and people who are a lot like us, yeah, we care about them, we want to do everything, but people who we can't quite relate to, yeah, it's not so important what happens to them, and that might be the animal case. So, I think Paul's right to insist that, you know, empathy can make us a bit too selective in who we treat with this, this, this moral care and welfare. At the same time, I think just subscribing to pure principle and not feeling moved by it would leave you in the position of some psychopaths who can understand the principles very well and calculate and reason with them to be able to operate and be able to manipulate. But they don't feel the force that we feel, we, I'm I'm now reaching out to you, we feel when we think of Captain Veer saying it's just wrong to kill Bud.
0: And should should those moral principles have any bearing within the political sphere where the Uh, the issue of power comes into consideration. And what I mean by that is the ability then to impose uh, maybe a narrow definition of morality, such as in the abortion situation. Yes. Yes. Yes.
4: I mean, I think that, I, I think what Jason's social cohesion coordination story tells is much more about politics and the morality of politics, what it's allowed to do. But most of us don't want we want politics to regulate a society, to see how a state can function, to see what its obligations are, what rights it confers on people, what things it restricts, and its dealings with other states. Um, but 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 we think there are places where it's got no right to go, like legislating for you know uh, women's reproductive rights. You know, very nicely, uh, one of the senators uh, in the U.S. said, "Well, why don't we uh, have a law that requires?" you know, men to, to, to um, have vasectomies so that, you know, this is a way of stopping unwanted break. It's you know, much
0: more efficient. Much more
4: efficient. And, of course, the men would say, no, you can't do this. It's my right, you know, so yeah. So, yes, yes, surprising. yes. surprising. It's obvious that we shouldn't go into certain areas, that politics has those wider social cohesion problems, but personal politics is also very important. How you actually deal with one another face-to-face. And there's something I noticed, that some some people have got the most terrible politics, you know, my father, on the right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you could forget. If it said it in the Daily Express, it was true. So he expressed terrible views about, about other people. And he might talk about immigrants, and he might talk about people of color and say, you know, why are they here? But he was—he would talk about how lovely the, 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 the local man in the, in the grocer shop, the Pakistani man was, and how terrible it was that people had smashed his windows and how much he felt for him. So you get this sort of, Moral sensitivity in response to an individual combined with these terrible views that you can express and the opposite is true. There are a lot of people on the left who've got all the right views and have got terrible personal politics and and treat those who work in lower jobs as we see in universities as you know, they are just there to serve us. They are our colleagues, the cleaners, you know, the caterers and all the rest of it. So, so you can have this mismatch between the general high-functioning political principles and what I think of as personal morality.
0: Yeah, I mean, Jesse, you want to come back on that? And also, I'd love to ask you whether it's even possible to conceive of any individual or let alone any government acting without a conception of morality. I mean, I don't know if I can even get around my head around what that means. Doesn't everyone have a conception hmm. of morality?
2: Well, so, if I can just say something on that. Yeah, of course. Yes, I, I think everyone has their, has a conception of morality. I don't think, I mean, there, there's overlap, but there's certainly not complete agreement with everyone on that. What I think is one way of thinking about this question that you raised about animal rights and uh, the mass slaughter of animals, this, I think, calls attention to the uh, helpful way, I believe, of thinking about morality, which is, think of morality as a social technology for trying to handle social problems, interdependent decision problems that happen when people need to make choices that interact. And what we see, I think, with the, big, with the question of factory farming is a fact that morality as a social technology is responsive to the social problems that a society faces at a time. But the problems societies face are not constant. They're continually evolving and they're changing. And the concept of, or the question, of what is the best cor- or correct way to feed a population takes on a very different form when you're thinking of a world of 10 or 12 billion people when than when you're thinking of a world of one billion or fewer people. And questions about the way in which we ought to have certain practices, especially when our values change so that we care now about sustainability in a way that was just simply not on the radar 50 years ago when people were thinking about how to organize societies. As our values change, as the social context changes, our views about what is moral are going to change. And so whereas people may have thought that there was no particular moral demands to be vegetarian or not 50 years ago, 60 years ago. I'm I'm speaking in in broad generalities, because of course people were arguing for vegetarianism back then, but now when we think about sustainability, when we think about concerns of the environment, when we think about the fact that we really could very easily destroy the planet with choices that we make that have consequences that go on for hundreds or thousands of years, I mean, we suddenly realize that things fall within the space of morality now that people didn't think of as falling within the space of morality hundreds of years ago. And as a result of that, what we get then is an expanding conception of morality and corresponding changes in what people take to be moral.
3: Sure, and almost certainly also a dawning awareness of the historical anomaly and of the brief period in which it made sense to take all and only human beings as the relevant scope of our moral interest, right?
0: Which again I think is a very Western-centric mm. perspective and there are of course entire cultures where vegetarianism has been the norm. So. Um, And on that note, um, unfortunately, we have our time is up. So I'd like to thank our panel, um, Barry, Jason and Justin. Please give them a round of applause. Thank you all for being here.
1: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Our Times. The podcast was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. It was hosted by me, Anna Carey, and our guests this week were Jason Mackenzie-Alexander, Justin Smith and Barry C. Smith hope you enjoyed this week's episode and if you'd like more on today's topic then please do give a listen to episode 150 on the lure of evil or 132 on the morality of the tribe we'd really appreciate if you could head over now to itunes and give us a rating or review make sure you're subscribed on whichever podcast platform you listen to us on and of course tune in next week for more debates and talks from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas